Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we go behind the scenes of one of the most divisive issues in modern politics, immigration. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Last week, we discussed the current debates over a federal government spending bill and speculated that if a government shutdown occurred, it would be because of wrangling over immigration more than the budget. Sure enough, we could be headed for that very scenario. As we sit here, congressional Democrats are battling the Trump administration over what to do about Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, an Obama administration policy that shielded certain illegal aliens from deportation by executive fiat. The Trump administration rescinded DACA, though a federal court order has temporarily blocked the rescission, but it has expressed a willingness to formally legalize the DACA recipients in exchange for concessions from congressional Democrats on border security and on reforms that will diminish family-based chain migration. But after a heated bipartisan meeting with Senators Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, David Perdue, and Dick Durbin, which resulted in the president reportedly using a scatological phrase to describe certain developing countries, prospects for a deal look grim, leaving congressional Republicans to regroup and prepare for another short-term government funding effort. Uh, well, Mike, let's start with just a touch of background on DACA. Where did it come from? So in 2012, in advance of his reelection, uh, President Obama issued an executive action and an executive order that dictated that illegal immigrants who had arrived in the United States before their 16th birthday and before 2007 and met certain other requirements about education and work, uh, education and work, who applied for legal protection would receive legal protection and not be able to be deported. Uh, and they would also be able to work legally in the United States. Now, there was a dispute about whether President Obama had this authority, correct? Yes. Uh, the congressional Republicans said that he didn't. Uh, Democrats had the majority in the Senate, so it was hard. You know, there was no real way to adjudicate it. Um, the Trump administration, after uh, President Trump got elected, uh, the Trump administration looked at it and they said, we don't have the authority. And that's why we are now in the situation that we are in. Of course, as I recall, President Obama for some years had told his own supporters uh, the same thing, that a president lacks this authority. Right. For a few years, uh, under pressure from the, uh, the immigration expansionist left, uh, President Obama had said that he could not unilaterally reform immigration. He needed a law in Congress. Once it became clear that he was not going to get a law from Congress that would satisfy him, uh, he acted in this manner. Yep. And now we just mentioned a moment ago that uh, current, the current legal status is that a federal judge uh, has said that Trump lacks the authority to do what he has just done. Uh, where does that stand? Uh, that has been appealed. Uh, I believe the Department of Justice appealed it directly to the Supreme Court rather than going to the Ninth Circus. Um, and it is, the, the legal watchers, although we can never know and never discern the precise uh, mental state of Anthony Kennedy at any given time, the suspicion is that the Supreme Court will laugh the district court that has stopped the rescission. They will simply laugh them out of court and hold that, yes, the president can issue an executive order reversing an executive order. Yes, uh, and uh, especially on the question of uh, of immigration, where executive uh, uh, power has always been understood to be rather broad. Uh, yes, executive power in 
we can argue whether this is whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I am a congressional supremacist and believe it's a bad thing. Uh, but the way uh, Congress has given over its uh, much of its authority to f create a uniform rule of naturalization, as the Constitution says, uh, has given it to the executive discretion, allowing the executive to do lots of things, whether or not Congress wants to wants the executive to do it. Now, the uh, Obama, or sorry, the Trump administration uh, is fighting this hard in the courts. As you said, they took it all the way up to uh, Supreme Court immediately. Um, but on the other hand, they have signaled some willingness to deal in this area. Is that right? Uh, yes. They, the Trump administration and President Trump himself have said that, you know, they really don't want to, to take away the status that was given to the, the um the relatively young uh, illegal immigrants who are given status by President Obama's executive fiat. So they have said, all right, you know, Democrats, we agree that, that this population should be given legal status and should uh, probably be given a path. I, I don't know where they stand on a pathway to citizenship, although a pathway to citizenship would probably come out of any reasonably predictable negotiation. Uh, so the Trump administration has said, fine, we'll give you that. And, but if we're going to do that, I mean, I was elected, you know, President Trump says, I was elected on a promise to build a wall, establish border security, reform immigration in a more restrictionist direction. You have to give me something. And that's where we, everything has kind of stalled. Yes. And, uh, and of course, this uh, made the, the biggest headlines because um, uh, of a, well, what uh, in the press release language is a full and frank discussion among the president and uh, some Senate leaders. Is that correct? A full and frank discussion, yeah. Um, so the Senate negotiators, uh, uh, Republican from South Carolina, relatively uh, liberal on immigration, Lindsey Graham, and number two Senate Democrat, Dick Durbin uh, of Illinois, were going to present their Agree, their agreement that they had made with some other uh, centrist Republican senators and Democrats. And the president called in two of the leading restrictionists, uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas and David Perdue of Georgia, uh, who have authored a, immigration, a restrictionist immigration proposal that we'll get to later in our discussion. Um, and they had a frank exchange of views that resulted in the president using a colorful uh, phrase um, that to describe, it, it, it is reported that he used it to describe uh, specifically Haiti and Africa um, and possibly other uh, less well-off countries. Uh, and he compared them to Norway and depending on who you believe, also possibly East Asia. Uh, this, needless to say, has sent the Democrats into a spiraling tizzy. Uh, the, the Cotton and Purdue deny that he said it implausibly. Uh, and Senator Graham, although not explicitly confirming that President Trump said what he said and that Graham actually called him out for having said a particularly nasty thing, uh, uh, Graham all but confirmed it with a non-confirmation confirmation. <laughs> yes. The uh, well, let's. let's uh, I, I can't resist a slight digression on uh, on Norway. Um, uh, 
couple of points on that would be that uh, Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, uh, has theorized that one reason the president happened to toss out the name Norway was because he so recently had met with uh, Norwegian officials uh, and they'd filled him uh, with uh, uh, the wonders of, of, uh, of Norway. Um, uh, personally, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of Scandinavian countries given their, their strong tendency to secularism and socialism, but, uh, but it is an even funnier part of this, which I've not seen anybody make the point, is uh, the most famous and highest ranking White House uh, official of Norwegian background uh, in recent decades was Karl Rove, uh, the so-called architect of, uh, of George W. Bush's um, success. Now, now Karl, with whom I overlapped a bit in the, in the White House uh, himself, was a vigorous pro-immigration um, uh, arguer, and he loved to quote 100-year-old newspaper stories and magazine articles about how horrible those Norwegian immigrants are in their ghettos and the, the bad way they live and, and the, the and, that's, and that's been one of the broader responses to what the president said. Uh, you know, my, my ancestors came from, many, many of them came from Ireland. Uh, when my ancestors would have come over, we haven't done the gene, I, I am not familiar with the precise genealogy, so I don't know exactly when they came over, but we can presume it was the middle of the 19th century. Uh, Ireland was not a nice place to live. Uh, you might the you, you Irish might, were not governing themselves well, although I believe they would say the English deserve a lot of credit. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> the, Engli the English were malgoverning the island, we would say, uh, and uh, much as parts of the Caribbean and Africa are malgoverned by their governments today, uh, the result was people wanted to go somewhere where they could govern themselves and have economic opportunity, and that's, uh, you know, now. Obviously, it's a diff you know it's it's a different time now. The economy's different. Getting a getting your first job on the ladder isn't as easy as you know signing on with the foreman and working you know your sixteen hour shift at the mill. Uh, but and of course, when uh, when the Irish came over, there wasn't also a welfare state. But the principle that people from lousy places can go on to become not only contributing members of society, but also profoundly contributing members of society, I think is important to point, is important to, to indicate. And I think the, certainly the way it was reported, it seemed like that had escaped President Trump. Yes. No, I, I guess you could, you could give an example, uh, maybe on, uh, on either side of this. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Europe currently has high levels of immigration in many places, from uh, uh, often from people from very messed up countries or very poorly governed countries, and uh, there are serious problems with that, like uh, the rape capital of Europe being in Sweden, for instance, right next to Norway. On the other hand, there would, I suppose, you could you could give the example of uh, the Chinese. Now, the the Chinese nation has not been well governed, arguably, for. Uh, quite a few centuries. Uh, on the other hand, um, it is uh, very, uh, it's a very famous example that off, so-called offshore Chinese, uh, when they are off mainland China and elsewhere in Asia or in Los Angeles or uh, whatnot, are uh, extraordinarily successful um, despite having come from a country that has not had a very American way of life in its government, let us say, for, for a very long time. Right. You see, and you see that you know, to choose a country indirectly implicated by the president, uh, one of the highest education levels, 
for immigrants to the United States are from Nigeria, uh, which is a very large country in West Africa. Why is that? Well, the people who have the wherewithal, uh, the people who have the means to come over from there uh, tend to be at least middle income, reasonably well off, reasonably well educated, and certainly then, and then if you can qualify for our merit immigration system, which is very hard, uh, then you are likely to be very well educated and potentially very well off. Yes. Well, let's, uh, let's pop back for a second to the politics of this. Politics, as Lincoln said, uh, always depends on public opinion. Um, and what is uh, the apparent public view on DACA? With the Every time I bring up an issue, I bring up issue polling. One of my core beliefs about politics is that issue polling is mostly garbage, uh, but it's all we got. Uh, and the issue polling here, depending on the pollster, is reasonably consistent. So I think it gives us a reasonable, a reasonable view on where the public seems to stand, or at least where it's inclined. And it's inclined strongly in favor of, uh, of a at least a rationalization of status. Uh, and probably a majority in favor of, at le of a path to citizenship. Uh, some of the polls that have come out in recent weeks, I think CBS had it at 70% favor, uh, either legal status or a path to citizenship. Uh, Quinnipiac had it at 79. Yeah. Um, now, of course, with the polling like that, as you, as you point out, it often is, is pretty shaky. And one of, the, one of the greatest pitfalls, I think, of asking people, polls that ask the, the, the questions on the order of, do you favor policy X or not? Um, the, uh, the single greatest failing of that is that they don't ask the critical follow-up question, and do you care? Um, the, a, 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 a great example of a completely different issue where that's, uh, where that's a thing is the question of gun, gun background checks. Supposedly, you know, the, Mike Bloomberg comes out and says, you know, 90% of Americans favor gun background checks. Yeah, but the 10% who care all hate it. Um, now, do I think do I think just putting on my rank punditry hat that a similar dynamic is pertaining here? No, I think there is a a very strong advocacy in in favor, uh, largely from uh, communities that have large numbers of DACA uh, DACA recipients. Um, do I think there is a staunchly opposed minority? Yeah, sure. Do I think it's very large? No. <laughs> yes. Well, that well that we'll see how that works in the uh, in in how all this uh, plays out. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, a little bit ago about uh, Trump making the argument, "Look, I won an election where one of my single biggest issues was saying we need to build uh, build a wall uh, in order to have stronger border security." Um, is there uh, much willingness among the Democrats to fund anything that uh, the president could call a wall? Not to enough that he could actually build something and cut a ribbon and say, look at my wall. Uh, the, the bill, that, the, the proposal that was presented in the meeting that led to the scatological phrase being used, uh, I think had a couple billion uh, uh, John Kelly, Trump's chief of staff, says he wants 20. Um, the, Demo the Democrats, because of their, their base politics, do not want anything that can be called a wall. Uh, now, this morning's tweets laid aside, because who knows what those are worth, um, over 
the last few months, basically since he got elected, uh, you know, Trump has stepped back from his insistence that it be, you know, a solid wall all the way across the continent, that we have in an interview with Sean Hannity back in December of, I think, 2016, he said, you know, we have vicious rivers. Uh, obviously, you can't build a wall in the middle of the Rio Grande. Um, the, so a, if you think of the wall as sort of a symbol of border security that would be a physical barrier in some places and, you know, extra border agents and swift boats and all that in some other places, you know, there is some willingness to give some but not very much and not enough that Trump can say, I've won, you know, I've won a, a uh, concession for my side. Plus, of course, that's not the only that's not the only uh, factor in uh, having illegal aliens in America. There's also the obviously the uh, the issue of people who come in legally but then do not leave when they were legally uh, required to leave and overstay their visas, and that's uh, that has also been a, a big factor the, here. One of the uh, you know bring bringing up uh, you know bring brings up the Irish again uh, the. Uh, a lot of people come over on student visas, temporary work visas, um, and then, uh, not the Irish, but other places on refugee uh, refugee and other temporary statuses. Uh, you know, they establish a life here, they get a job, and then their six months or their eight months or their couple years runs out, and then they don't leave. Uh, and depending, the estimates say that maybe up to half of the annual illegal immigrant inflow, uh, which is lower than it has been in past years, um, may be from people who overstay legal status. Now, some of them, you know, they mess up for administrative reasons and then they go home. Others are actually trying to stay. Yeah. The, um, so in a uh, overarching policy way of looking at this would be that uh, one side stresses uh, what they would call family unif reunification and what their critics would call chain migration, uh, where one family member can bring right. more family and members me, and, and then me, those let, family let me, members Yeah, let me kind of explain how, how, how the chain theory, how the, a theoretical chain would work. Uh, you admit an immigrant for, you know, let's say that they're admitted uh, maybe on an investor visa, uh, an immigrant investor visa, or they're uh, a work-sponsored immigrant. That immigrant can then break, can then use once that immigrant becomes a U.S. citizen, um, and they can bring over on, as a permanent resident, but with time lags and a couple of asterisks, their immediate family. But let's assume that they they get naturalized, then they bring over their immediate family as permanent residents. They can also sponsor family preference, which is for siblings. I believe it's siblings, parents, and adult children. And on family preference with some asterisks and a fairly substantial time lag, our immigrant could bring over his brother. And then once his brother, you know, five, year, five to seven years down the road, got his U.S. citizenship, he could then bring over his family. And so immigration, critics of immigration, uh, say that that creates a theoretically endless string, a theoretically endless chain of new immigrants. There are several asterisks that I think it's fair to point out. 
One, obviously not every immigrant is going to necessarily, not every immigrant is necessarily going to sponsor uh, their siblings and parents and so forth coming over. Uh, the, there are substantial time lags in between when you can petition, you can ask the government, please put these people in, in my family preference line in line for immigration, and when they would qualify for, when they actually would end up qualifying for a green card. And then, you know, when, when you come over for a green card, that's your permanent residency. Uh, I believe it's five years down the road. You can then apply for citizenship, assuming you meet the requirements. Uh, so that so there, are, this is a many many year process, and a human lifespan puts puts some boundaries on the on the length of a chain that you could create. Yep. Of course, on the on the flip side, the folks on the other side of the argument, uh, including it, uh, presumably the president, uh, would say. Uh, other countries routinely screen the immigrants that they permit. For instance, our Canadian uh, neighbors to the north, not, not known uh, particularly for their uh, own vicious racism, but they have a much more merit-based system, do they not, for allowing yes, immigrants the... in. And if one wanted to interpret the president's remarks charitably, it would be, why shouldn't we be getting the creme de la creme right. uh, of the, other countries? The, the, the Nigerian coming so, here to finish his doctorate in microbiology. Right, um, and, then, and, then, and then the Nigerian, finished, once he finishes his doctorate in micro, microbiology, can then go work for Pfizer and become a U.S. citizen. Yes. The, uh, so the other Anglosphere democracies, the, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, although they get a big asterisk because of the EU, but that's going to go away which is another asterisk, uh, Canada and Australia have what's called a points-based system. And this is what was proposed in that RAISE Act that Senators Cotton and Purdue introduced that I said we would get back to. Yep. Um, the, the idea behind a points-based system is that the receiving country, that would be the United States, looks at the people petitioning to immigrate and looks at their economic qualifications, their likely social contribution, their age, because age determines whether you're going, how long you're going to be a productive worker paying social security tax versus how long you're going to be collecting social security payouts. And then, you know, according to a, uh, to whatever, um, whatever, schedule of points is, is issued, those with a sufficient number of points, they have advanced degrees, they speak the, they speak the receiving country's language, they, um, you know, they have only a spouse, they have, you know, depend, again, it depends on the precise schedule that's issued. Once you have enough points, then you are qualified to enter and receive permanent residency and ultimately citizenship. Yeah. Well, now, uh, just to say in passing here that, of course, there's also the issue of what the total inflow should be, and there, there's great controversy over that. But let's, let's move on to uh, our own specialty, which is the influencing groups. Uh, in this debate, there's n it's not really just a two-sided debate. It's really a three-sided debate. It's at least a three. You could even say three and a half. Uh, Who would the, the first group be? So the first group or first and a half group would be the restrictionist side. Uh, and kind of the larger 
faction, at least, you know, in theory, are the many of the more national conservative mainstream entities. Uh, Heritage Foundation and National Review Magazine are probably the two that are most uh, are most prominent in this debate. Uh, but then you also have these the sidecar of single issue immigration restrictionist groups. Uh, Center for Immigration Studies, which does uh, which does research on immigration levels, uh, Numbers USA, which does advocacy and uh, mo- grassroots mobilization, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, which also does advocacy, and Californians for Population Stabilization, which is a state level uh, immigration restrictionist advocacy group in California. And of course, that's intriguing because one doesn't typically think of environmentalists getting lumped in with uh, groups considered conservative. Yeah, population stabilization isn't exactly in the Heritage Foundation's mission statement, is it? Um, And there's a reason for that, for those groups being in that kind of half faction. Uh, All of these single issue, of these four single issue groups, uh, and, and and a few others, it's not an exhaustive list, are backed by a fanatically pro-population control minority faction of environmentalists. The largest funder is a group called the Colcom Foundation, which is one of the SCAFE family philanthropies, but not not one of the ideologically conservative SCAFE family philanthropies. It's the the philanthropy of of Cornelia SCAFE May, who was a follower of and idolized Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger. Colcom itself has given a six-figure grant to Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania. Uh, in addition to backing uh, environmentalist groups like the Center for Coalfield Justice, the Community Environment Legal Defense Fund, and then they all the, these immigration restrictionist groups also get money from the Whedon Foundation, which is an environmentalist uh, group that has backed the Natural Resources Defense Council, has funded the pro-abortion dissident nominally Catholic ha-ha-ha group Catholics for Choice, uh, and even the militant atheist group Freedom From Religion Foundation. So you could say they're, uh, uh, these are the folks who are opposed to immigrants because they're opposed to human beings. They're, they're oppo- <laughs> these, this is a, this, this, the, the funding organizations are opposed to people. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the, in, in, um, fact, in fact, it was, according to the Los Angeles Times, it was said about, uh, about Scaife May, the, the founder of Colcom Foundation, that, uh, that, she li- that she liked animals more than people. <laughs> And that, yes. was by, and that was by a, apparently a friendly acquaintance, according to the L.A. Times reporter. Well, that's a line out of uh, the Wall Street movie, as I recall, with Michael Douglas. But uh, re- referring to my, my own ethnic group, the, the Wasps, <laughs> they, they love animals, they hate people, he tells Charlie Sheen. But uh, now the next, uh, the next um, faction in the, the broader debate then would be uh, the more business and libertarian-ish sorts. And what can you tell us about them? So... The business, the business community, the sort of Chamber of Commerce, Business Roundtable, American Farm Bureau Federation, uh, generally favor expanded immigration. They like a large labor force. They like a ready supply of workers. Um, they also favor uh, a legalization of most of the current illegal immigrant population. Uh, it makes it makes things makes things administratively easy. 
they also get support from ideological libertarian groups, Mercatus Center, Cato Institute, uh, philanthropists Charles and David Koch, and the libertarians, the philosophical ground is that a border puts an imposition on people's right to work and move about as they choose. You know, I am, I am allowed as a citizen of the District of Columbia to live and work in Virginia, but I am not allowed to live and work in Lisbon, Portugal. And that offends the libertarian sensibility. And, and that offends the libertarian, sen libertarian sensibility that people, like, it's an, you know, an, uh, ultimately, they, they see it as an ultimately arbitrary restriction on individual freedom. Um, and then we also have the, the sort of the tech billionaire crowd uh, who sponsor a group called Forward.us, which is stylized capital FWD.us. Uh, that advocates mostly for higher skilled immigration, but also for coalition management purposes uh, for a generally expansionist uh, policy. Yes, the, uh, the Silicon Valley likes a particular type of uh, visa uh, for high-tech employees that they, can, uh, that they can bring over from places like India. Um, well, and then the third faction uh, would be the left. Uh, and who are the leaders there? Uh, they're exactly who you think you would be, who, who you think they would be. Uh, the big left-wing foundations, uh, Open Society, which is Soros' uh, principal, principal uh, funding vehicle, uh, the Ford Foundation, the, one of the largest uh, foundations in the country, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, which is Warren, one of Warren Buffett's many uh, philanthropic vehicles, uh, Tides Foundation, the list kind of goes on. Uh, they, like the weird environmentalists on the restrictionist side, also fund a bunch of single-issue non-profit policy groups. Uh, the Migration Policy Institute, which is their research, their research center, National Immigration Forum, which is their advocacy group, National Immigration Law Center, which does litigation, and the American Immigration Council, which also does policy research and advocacy. Uh, but that's not the only part of the left uh, that's involved in these fights, is it? Uh, no. You have the, the general multi-issue uh, advocacy groups like uh, the Clinton World Think Tank Center for American Progress. We'll get back to them in a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and also labor. Uh, the SCIU is a funder of, a, of some, of the, some of those uh, single-issue immigration groups. Uh, NEA and Unite Here have funded uh, the National Immigration Law Center. Um, you know, labor, kind of like business, sees the opportunity, you know, whereas business sees the opportunity for more workers, labor sees the opportunity for more members. Yes, although uh, I suspect that if you polled the membership of the National Education Association, uh, many of whose members have to deal with school systems struggling mightily uh, in, uh, no, under, well, under the influx of immigration. Well, well then, that, you get, then you get into coalition management, which we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, now, um, uh, thanks for laying out the, the sort of the three or three and a half um, parts uh, of this uh, jigsaw puzzle of influence. Um, uh, obviously, when groups are jockeying for influence and trying to persuade the public, uh, one of their favorite weapons uh, is to talk about uh, people who disagree with them's motives. 
And this is a particularly rich field for that uh, in this issue area. So uh, why, don't, of, why don't we start with the... Uh, part of why this is such a divisive issue is because everybody, just about everybody, thinks everybody else is behaving dishonestly. Uh, so the left-wing ideologues uh, just assume anybody on the restrictionist side is racist uh, or white supremacist or, you know, anti-Latino or whatever the word of the day is. Um, you know, I mean, The Nation back in, I think it was June of 2017, published a piece that was titled, How to Fight Trump's Racist Immigration Policies. We don't even need to argue that they're, uh, that they, that they are, uh, that they are racist. Um, now, some of the behavior of some of the restrictionists, like Trump's comment that juxtaposed the world against Africa as a supply, as a source of potential immigrants, does not does not help dispel that notion. Uh, whether you believe that that was his intention or not, it doesn't look good. And then there's the business community. Uh, now the business community has to play has to play a lot nicer uh, because they also want things like tax cuts and things like deregulation that uh, Republican administrations, including the Trump administration, are likely to work with them on. So they tend to be they they tend to play good cop you know it kind of is a good cop bad cop dynamic with the with the the far left the business community tends to just tends its rhetoric tends to be more that the the restrictionists are just wrong uh, if I may quote a business roundtable chamber of commerce joint statement you know they will say things like a 2015 report by the chamber of commerce showed that in the aggregate. Immigrant workers do not depress the wages of American workers, nor do they take away jobs. Yeah. That, of course, is probably the the single most uh, disputed. That er, that that question is extremely disputed that, on both that sides. Is, that is, in many ways, the crux of all the debate, and the science is not helpful because it really depends on who you ask. Yes, there uh, is a uh, George. One of the one of the on the opposite side of what you just quoted would be George. Borjas of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, uh, who takes right. very much a different view. Right. On the uh, one hand, on that. the one hand, you have George Borjas, and the other hand, you have, uh, you know, a number of economists who say that it's either a wash or that it actually increases uh, native opportunity. Uh, in the in, long run, in in the at least in the long run, yeah. Though uh, for, it's understandable, perhaps that people in uh, declining steel towns or or, or other places would uh, would struggle to accept that. If the if the long run hasn't arrived yet, you can you can get a bit you can get a bit jumpy without necessarily having any uh, having any malicious intent. Yep. Now, what about the the left wing uh, uh, influencers in this debate? Uh, their motives have also been seriously questioned. Yes, the right, not without cause, uh, which we will get to, uh, tends to believe that the left is acting in a sort of naked partisan interest, almost like gerrymandering. Uh, it is not a secret that immigrants at least in the first generation, tend to be left of center. Um, the lower, the uh, you know, Heritage Foundation immigration scholars, uh, 
openly said in an, in an, in an uh, opinion piece that low-skill immigration, low, lower-skill immigration, quote, arbitrarily shifts the political balance in the United States. Uh, now, and that Center for American Progress that you mentioned a little bit ago, which uh, has sometimes by its critics been referred to as the Democratic Party's PR firm, uh, uh, they had a little uh, embarrassing uh, leak recently suggesting a, there may be some truth to this. So uh, the Center for American Progress is 501c4 organization. Uh, the Center for American Progress Action Fund, which may be better known to the public as the publishers of the blog Think Progress, uh, put, out a, put out a memo, which was signed by a former Clinton campaign operative, um, that said that legalizing not just the recipients of DACA, but also anyone who would have been eligible under any circumstances for DACA, quote, or is, is, quote, a critical component of the Democratic Party's future electoral success. Statements like that do not dispel the, do, do very little to dispel the notion that, um, that the left, ideological left-wing groups are operating in a partisan interest, and it actually get, and it gets, you know, more amusing. Uh, so NBC News, uh, I want to say last, uh, late last, either early this week or late last week, uh, ran a breathless story about uh, Russian nationals who were coming to South Florida where and staying at, among other places, various Trump organization properties to have their children in the United States. Obviously, under the current, I believe correct, I'll, I, I, will, uh, I will not dispute <laughs> um, interpretation of the 14th Amendment, Anyone born in the United States and subject to our laws, which is basically taken to mean not foreign diplomats who have diplomatic immunity, is a U.S. citizen. Uh, many immigration restrictionists don't like this because it means that if you're a if you're a foreign national, you come to the United States, you have a child. Now you have a tie to the United States. That child can't sponsor you for a green card until they're older, but immigration courts are loath to break up families for an entirely understandable reason. Um, but it does, if you're an immigration restrictionist, which I'll be frank, I am not, uh, creates, a, creates a policy problem. Uh, so NBC News was, was breathless about the fact that Russian nationals were doing this and were, some of them were staying at Trump properties. Of course, in 2015, they had bashed Jeb Bush, uh, also not an immigration restrictionist, uh, because he had expressed concern about how many foreign nationals were coming to the U.S. for what is often called birth tourism. Yes, well, the, we should say that our, our friends at uh, Hillsdale College would insist that the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment on that question uh, is not correct. Um, and that I, the, I, and I never, I never denied it was disputed. <laughs> yes, the uh, uh, because it would seem that um, that a well to take this example, if you are a uh, Russian <coughs> mobster and you happen to come to uh, America to, in order to have your child, um, you're no more subject to the laws than the French ambassador's wife is. Uh, if she happens to have it, uh, her child in Georgetown at the embassy. But uh, anyway, there's one. There's one more. Uh, to, just to get all the accusations on the table, I think there's also the uh, conservative accusations against uh, the business community uh, and, and its uh, the motivations behind its 
uh, desire for lots of guest worker visas and the right. like. Uh, so you mentioned guest workers, so I'll throw a I'll throw a little ast I'll throw a little asterisk there. Uh, the the H visas, which are not technically immigrant visas, but that's a bunch of confusing confusing legalese, um, which allow certain workers. It's like agri agriculture, high tech, and there are some low skill, but there are so few that it's almost not even worth considering for purposes of this discussion. Uh, one of the issues with those is that it ties a worker to a firm almost kind of as a semi-indentured servant. Uh, so, many, so some people even who might otherwise favor uh, high levels of free immigration question whether the H programs are, are legitimate because they prevent, the, they prevent the worker from engaging in free negotiation of their labor. Uh, but generally, again, we mentioned that one of the most hotly contested pre premises of the immigration debate is the effect of immigration on native worker wages. Uh, restrictionists believe, understandably, you know, understandably given the position that they take, that native worker wages are depressed and that therefore uh, the business community is secretly operating in the interests of lowering native worker wages. Again, the evidence is mixed, yep. and it depends on who you ask, and it depends on the assumptions, and it depends on scale. You know, I don't believe that either side is, argue, is arguing this point in bad faith, uh, even, though, even though ultimately, theoretically, only one can be right. Yes. Well, and to get one, uh, I want to put, before we wrap up here, I want to put one more uh, motive accusation <laughs> out there, which is uh, whichever Democrat, uh, and I think most people would put their money on Dick Durbin, leaked the president's uh, scatological remark. Uh, uh, his motive has been questioned because by uh, that, and to be fair, in this town, it's pretty, it is unusual for such high-level negotiations to have such things leak out. Um, uh, there are certainly those who accuse Mr. Durbin of doing that in order to rile up their base uh, and uh, squash the possibility of some kind of compromise now of course, so that uh, well, a riled up base can then be driven to the polls uh, in November. Right. The, the question of do you, want the, do you want the issue or do you want a solution is raised uh, especially at the the kind of organized left, like the business community want a solution on their terms. I think that that's generally clear. That's yes. generally how they operate. Uh, they don't have elections. Uh, they have quarterly earnings statements. <laughs> um, the, but, you know, it is true that for the left, having uh, the, the immigration issue Specifically, as a mo I, I, I have read that specifically as a motivating issue, the issue is not so much citizenship, not so much immigration levels, not so much, um, you know, f what restrictionists sometimes call future flow, the immigrants, immigrant, more immigrants coming in, as the dealing with the currently illegal population. Uh, the you know is my aunt, you know is your aunt who is not supposed to be here going to be sent back from whence she came? Uh, you know the 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 you know Congressman Gutierrez says vote for me or else yes okay I'll vote for Congressman Gutierrez Democrat of Illinois 
Um, the so again, the notion that, and especially with the prospects of a democratic wave election, where the Democrats, even if they wanted a solution, could negotiate from a stronger position. You know, the idea that there would be an intentional attempt to scuttle is not out of the question. No, uh, that's that's that is certainly true, uh, and I'm sure lots of motivations. Uh, go into all of this. Uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson famously said, "All motives are mixed." Uh, and with, uh, a, that, with that, that, that's, a, that's a good word to end on. <laughs> yes, that's 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 the right way to, to leave this uh, very messy and hotly contested uh, fight over influence on our immigration policies. That's our show for this week. Uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.